Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Now this is a little bit of a preface. It doesn't have anything to do with the subject, but I realized when I was putting this together and, and studying for this that it's true with any subject that it is impossible to cover any subject with one sermon. You just you can't do it. It's impossible to bring out of a text all the truth in one sermon. So the Bible has an infinite value, infinite wisdom, infinite depth. It's like looking at a diamond that sparkles from a million different points, and you're lucky in a sermon if you capture two or three of those points. Uh, so I say this because I encourage everybody to look for ways to study what you hear preached, what you hear read about in Scripture. Use that sermon as a springboard for your own personal devotion uh, to God to know Him and know His Word because you may study something or hear something else and say, well, uh, I didn't hear Him say that in the sermon this morning on that subject. And, and you'd be absolutely right. There's no way. It's just it's too broad. We're just we're covering the, the high points in a, in a sermon. Part of spiritual maturity, part of Christian maturity is the ability to feed yourself. We always need preachers in our lives. I need a preacher in my life. I need somebody to give me spiritual pastoral direction, but we also need to be able to be self-feeders, to, to sit down with God, with the Word, and to learn of Him and to let His Word and His glory transform some of us, all of us. So with repentance this morning, we asked the question, and I think the first question that, that I think of when I talk about repentance is, why does the behavior of some people not mirror what they believe about God? Because you see, We've all seen it. People who believe something, who claim something about God, but their behavior does not match what they believe. And that, if we're honest, that's all of us at certain times in our lives. We're all, we've all been there. That's been us. And the answer lies in the power of our flesh and, our, and sin itself. That without the washing of the blood of Jesus that He shed on Calvary, and without the regeneration of His Spirit, we are without hope, enslaved to the affections of our flesh and the powers of darkness. There lies inside each one of us the potential to commit the most vile and heinous of acts. Because apart from Jesus Christ, our fallen nature that we all have, it propels us towards a lifetime of disappointing behavior with the grand finale being eternity lost without God. And that is a reality that we all must recognize. Our righteousness, the Bible says, our righteousness that we bring to the table is filthy rags. That's what I have to offer God. So the Apostle Paul could look inside and declare that I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Even Paul said there's nothing good inside of me. And then he says, I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to accomplish it. And that is the great quandary and struggle in the lives of millions of people. This is why it's possible to believe something and it still not affect your behavior because you, you do not have the ability in, in, in and of yourselves to do what you actually believe. The will exists inside of us, but the power to execute on that belief just isn't there without the Spirit of God. And so you don't have to look very far to see examples of people's lifestyles not matching what they believe. People believe that if they don't eat right, it will create serious health issues, and yet they still make unhealthy choices. That's all of us at some point. We know that that's not good, but we still 
do it even though we know that the end result isn't good. People know that if they speed, they'll get a ticket and yet they still exceed the speed limit and we all get tickets. Why? It's because we believe something, but a lot of times our behavior doesn't match our beliefs. It's just our human condition. So we are irrational creatures. We are subject to emotions and impulses that to a much greater degree than I think we even want to admit. And so you go into a bookstore, I was just in a Barnes and Noble this week and the market, if you look, the market is just full of self-help books and seminars you can take designed to guide us to a place of discipline and order. And, and a lot of those things have, have their place. They're not, all, they're not all bad, they can be helpful. They can have their place in our lives and they can even have a limited effect. But nothing can create true, lasting change like the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ applied to our lives. One of the saddest things that we can observe is the man or woman who has walked away from God in the church. And after 27 years of ministry, I have seen a lot of people walk away from God. Uh, and and uh, you look at that and I say, well, they know and believe that the road, like there's a mental belief that they know the, the road they're traveling on is going to lead to heartache in this life. And if they don't turn themselves around, it's going to lead to damnation in eternity. And yet they continue to stumble towards destruction, fully aware of the consequences that await them. So the question that we can ask this morning is, shouldn't this knowledge change their behavior? Isn't the thought of spending eternity somewhere without God, never mind your, your idea of what eternal punishment looks like, the, the worst part of eternity that's that direction is that it's without God. You don't spend eternity in, eternity in the presence of God. It's not as much as about the punishment or the suffering as it is, I don't have the presence of God in my life for all of eternity. Isn't that enough? The, the truth is based on the observation of too many people's lives that it is not enough to change them. People believe in that and still transgress the Word of God. I, I watched, I grew up and watched my pastor on numerous occasions. He would stand in the pulpit with fingers on both sides of his head, right here on his temples, and he would say, the greatest battle that you ever face in life is between these two points. And you be honest, as a kid, I, I did, had no idea what he was talking about. I saw him do it as a kid. But the older that I, older I get, I completely understand what he was saying. It's like, yeah, this is where the battle is. It's the struggle of the mind. Uh, that's where the war is won and lost. And, and we are our own worst enemy. Like, it's, it's not Satan. It's not the guy next to me. It's not somebody in my house. It's my own worst enemy exists right here. It's me. And we revert back, by nature, we revert back to self-destructive habits as a coping mechanism to deal with the battles of life. We do the exact opposite of what is good for us. I had a good friend of mine, one of my best friends growing up. There were four of us boys that grew up together. And one of, one of those boys uh, that became, uh, as a teenager, one of my best friends, uh, he, he developed a severe drug addiction. And he had one drug, and he had, he had tried everything that there was, but he had one drug that he couldn't go more than six months without. He said, I can go six months. And he said, I hit that six-month mark. He told me this in the car one day. Uh, he said, I go six months. And he said, you know, everybody thinks I'm good because it's six months. And he goes, that's as far as I can get. And he said, I just I fall right back into it. And that, that pattern, that lifestyle, 
ended up uh, leading him to to prison is, was the end result of that uh, because it just it was just that cycle there and we all tried to help him we did we did everything that we could to help him but it's just that there was a bondage there to sin and it sounds stupid and ignorant and foolish and it's easy for us to look at somebody else and say, well, I don't know how they could struggle with that. But the reality is everybody has some sort of struggle like that. We are all held captive by the stupidity and ignorance of sin. It's our nature. It's how we are born. Our default position in this world is bondage. There are several doctrines in the pulpits of America today that are being neglected. And among those doctrines, among those ideas is the doctrine of sin. Because sin is that self-destructive cancer that has destroyed countless lives and families. And that curse of sin is embedded deep into our spiritual DNA. That without Jesus, we can't help ourselves. We are slaves to our human nature. And that is the tone of the last chapter of Romans chapter 7. Right before that great chapter, a lot of people would argue that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And it's certainly, I mean, it's it's right there. But the chapter before that, chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, he cries out. You can feel it as you're reading it. You can just feel it building to this crescendo. And then he cries out in chapter 7, O wretched man that I am. This is Paul talking. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The Apostle realizes that he is a sinful, hopeless man without Jesus. But then two verses later, there's this beam of glorious light that shines through. And then he starts writing, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The freedom is found through the obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection, it moves us from condemnation Condemnation, not just being a bad feeling, but condemnation. Paul's using that word in the sense that you're sitting in a court and the judge is condemning you. The judge is looking and saying, you're guilty. I'm condemning you to this sentence. That is the language here. And then Paul says, I'm not guilty anymore. I was guilty, but I'm, I'm now innocent. Christ has made me innocent of all of those sins through what He did for me on the cross. And it is only through the cross of Jesus that we can be made righteous. We have no ability in ourselves to cleanse ourselves or save us. That's why the idea of self-help is so limited. is because you can't help yourself to the extent that you need it. You can read those books, and I've read a lot of those self-help type books. I've read several of those. They're on my bookshelf. But I also realize that if you're looking... At that as the end all, you're going to be very disappointed because it is limited, because I don't have it in myself to help myself. It comes from without. It comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are completely dependent on Christ for the miracle of regeneration. It is a miracle. Do we believe in miracles today? Yes. I believe in a lot of physical miracles that God can do a lot of things, but the greatest miracle God does is take a heart that's dead and bring it back to life through the power of the gospel. So what then is, what's that catalyst? What causes us to believe in God and it ultimately affect our actions? How can our behavior align with our beliefs? And ultimately, it is an issue of surrender and submission and repentance. Submission to King Jesus. Jesus, you are king of my life. That's what I said at the outset that the church exists anywhere where Jesus is declared king and the Holy Spirit is present to make that a reality. 
that's the church. The man or woman, the boy, the girl who wants to please God must submit to Christ and to His Word. Our carnal nature must die and the cross again becomes on the horizon as the instrument by which we can live according to His Word. Except this time it's not the cross of Calvary. It's my cross. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, when Jesus says, take up your cross, those who heard his words knew exactly what he meant. Now, remember, this is before he was crucified that he's saying these words. But the cross wasn't reserved for just Jesus. It wasn't a special type of execution. There's a historian named Josephus who writes outside of the Bible. He writes about going into Rome. And on the road to Rome, there being hundreds of crosses on both sides of the roads with people hanging on them crucified. And it was a signal. It was a very intentional signal to anybody coming into that city that when you come to Rome, you better toe the line. It was their form of capital punishment. It would be like today the government putting criminals on the side of the road into our city. And, you know, they have the the gas chamber and the electric chair, it's the, the exact same thing. It was their method of execution and executing people along the road. That would send a really clear signal that you probably don't want to break the law in this town. And that's what it was. Jesus was one of thousands of people who died of capital punishment this way. So when Jesus talks about the cross, everybody in their minds immediately says, oh, he's talking about capital punishment by the Roman government. That's what he's referring to. And Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow me, you better take up your cross every day and follow me. They knew what he meant. It was the cross in their culture only had one purpose. It was an instrument of torment. I've thought it for years. I've since heard it said, but the equivalent of, of the cross, I mean, we have the cross as a symbol everywhere, and it's a great religious symbol, but it would be the equivalent of putting an electric chair um, up as the symbol of death. The cross is the symbol of death. That's what it was. And we do it as a symbol of Christ dying for us. But to, to those people, it wasn't a religious symbol. It meant nothing religious at all. It was simply a way to die. Christ, the criminals in that day died gruesome, brutal deaths upon very crude wooden crosses. The cross was vulgar and revolting. And it was this imagery that Jesus brought into the minds of those around him when he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to die every day on a cross. And the next verse was even more telling because he gave them the motivation for why they would want to put themselves on the cross. Because why would I do this, Jesus? Why would I? And he's, he's speaking figuratively here. He's not telling people because he's saying you do this every day. He's saying you go out and you die to yourself every single day if you're going to be a follower of me. But the motivation was the next verse. Whosoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The only path to true living is to die to self. So Paul takes this thought even further. And Paul says... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul was a walking dead man. He died to self on a road to Damascus. He lived his life with a singleness of purpose. Jesus commanded that we take up a cross every day, and Paul obeyed that command. Paul made a statement in Scripture. 
He said, I die daily. That's how he could do what he did, is that every day he got up and said, I'm dying to flesh. I'm dying to my own desires and drives and wills and emotions. I only have one reason to live. He said, it's not I, but Christ that lives within me. That, that's what you were seeing with Paul was, was Christ, and that's what, what we are supposed to be doing. I don't think any of us will ever live a life that is on par with the Apostle Paul. That's not the goal. The goal is not to be like Paul. The goal is to be like Jesus and to let Jesus shine out through us that where I die to self and how does, that, how does that work out practically? It works out practically through how does Jesus want me to live? How does Jesus want me to, to act in this, in this situation? How does Jesus want me to treat every aspect of my life to where it's not me, but it's Him that's moving and living through me? Paul's success, we all deem Paul as a successful missionary, successful pastor, successful preacher, but his success was not a product of his talent or his education. We don't know anything about Paul from Scripture, about his personal life or his appearance, but we have the, the most reliable first century historian, the one I referred to earlier that said, I saw hundreds of crosses going into Rome. He has written, he wrote volumes. He was a contemporary, lived at the same time as Paul. His name is Josephus. And Josephus gives a little bit of a description of Paul. And it talks about him having, probably having bad eyesight, of being... He was not a good speaker, and there's even ideas that Paul talks about in the Scripture where it's, he's, he's probably not that good in front of people talking. Like, that's not his skill set. Paul is not an impressive individual to get to. He's not a charismatic. He, he doesn't come across as a leader. Uh, none of those things are probably true about Paul. But what Paul did have and what made him a success was his unbridled obedience and submission to God and His Word. The idea that hell, and I'm not going to go down the road of, of what all that may entail, but just the idea when we talk about hell from a, from a Christian viewpoint, the idea that it's unfair, which is a lot of times what's leveled against God, so how could a loving God send people to eternal, eternal torment? And it may be that's just simply the, the wrong question to ask. The question may be, how could an infinitely holy God not separate Himself from people who sin? And we're all sinners. The answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reconciles us back into God. But to transgress against an infinitely holy God is worthy of separation from God. God cannot stand in the presence of, of sin. Romans says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is only because of what Jesus did at Calvary that I am free from the curse of sin and death. So what does it mean to repent? What is this gift of repentance? I grew up in a, in a setting that always, I, I think, whether intentionally or not, the idea there was that to repent meant to tell God you're sorry. And there's certainly an element of that. The text we read this morning in 1 Corinthians says godly sorrow works repentance, or it leads to repentance. So it starts with, with that godly sorrow of telling God you're sorry and having, you know, it, godly sorrow is that I'm sorry for it, not sorry that I got caught, right? There's that, that sorrow that says, I'm sorry. Well, if you were really sorry, you wouldn't have waited until you got caught to repent. Uh, 
so there's, but that, that's not God. Godly sorrow is that, that sorrow that comes from a conviction from God's Spirit that says, you know what, I'm not living right, I'm not doing right, I need to change, and it's that godly sorrow. And that leads to repentance because the idea of repentance isn't so much that you're sorry, but that, it's you'll, that you'll change, that you'll think differently, that you'll reconsider what you're doing. The literal meaning of the word repent simply means that you were walking this way and you stopped and turned around and started walking the other way. It means a change of direction. That's what repentance is. It's something that we do on our own through the power, the empowerment of the Spirit of God. We repent in response to Jesus' overture of grace and mercy in our lives that compels us and convicts us through the moving of the Spirit of God. Ephesians 2 4 and 5. I love these verses. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even while we were yet dead in sins, He quickened us together with Christ. Quicken just means make alive. If you read quickened in the New Testament, it's not referring to tax software. It's referring to Jesus making you alive. That's all it means. He, so He has quickened us. He makes us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. We are saved by grace. I can't earn my salvation. I can't do anything to merit my salvation. Uh, I've heard statements like, well, I can't go to church. The walls would fall in. They don't know. Well, the church was custom designed for the person who thinks the walls will fall in. That's what the church was designed for. The church the specific church that exists that doesn't want people in there like that has ceased to become a church. They're not a church. I don't care what their sign says. The sign can say a church. Uh, going back, and Matthew Bates wasn't writing scripture, but I think he's absolutely right in what he says. The church exists anywhere where Jesus is declared king. Jesus is not king in a setting where people are not welcome based on what they've done. When the church ceases to become a hospital for sinners, a hospital for the broken, it ceases to lose its purpose and it ceases to be a church. It's been said, I've heard it said for years, what could a church do? Talking about on a Sunday morning, what could a church do and continue to do if God lifted His presence from it and people would never know? They could still go through the motions, they could still sing, they could still preach, they could still worship. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, so we think of Revelation as that prophecy book that has all this imagery and symbols, but the first three chapters of Revelation are gold because it has nothing to do with that. The first three chapters of the Revelation is Jesus speaking through John as he writes letters to seven different churches. So it's, and he'll write, to the angel at the church of Ephesus, to the angel at the church of Philadelphia. Angel here doesn't mean spiritual being, it's messenger. That's all the word angel means, it's just messenger. Probably the pastor or the leadership of the church. And he writes these things. And in, in these letters he says, I have, some of the churches he has nothing good to say. Other churches he has a mix. I, I commend you for this, you're doing a good job here. But then he says, I have somewhat against you. And then he says, if you don't change, if you don't repent, he said, I will remove my candlestick from your presence. And I thought, how many churches has God reached down and removed the candlestick from their presence, removed His presence out of their presence, and they never even knew Jesus disappeared? 
They were so caught up doing their religiosity and their traditions and their programs that they never recognized that Jesus said, you know what, I'll move on down the street and go somewhere else. I can't work here. God, help us for that never to be us. Jesus is king, and we declare him king. By grace you were saved. While repentance primarily means having a change of mind, it does not exclude asking Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Scripturally, having godly sorrow leads to biblical repentance. For godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. This is the time in our lives when we feel the drawing power of His Spirit leading us to a place of repentance and we come to God with a broken and a contrite spirit. We're aware that without His grace and mercy we would be eternally lost and this reality, this godly sorrow leads us to say, I've got to change my ways. I've got to turn around. So we look into the mirror of His Word and we look into the mirror of His Spirit and we come to this stunning, sobering reality that you know what, I'm lost and broken without Jesus Christ. And that awakening spawns a change in our thinking and our approach to life. And we begin to move away from darkness and begin to move toward Jesus Christ. And Christ's response is always the same. Always the same. He always responds with meeting us with grace and mercy and with light, with His Word and His Spirit. And by His grace we are redeemed, we are adopted through the power of Calvary's cross. And I close this morning with this. When we talk about justification, which just means there again, you're in a courtroom and God looks at the, looks at the center, who's me, it's you and I, we're sitting in that chair, God looks at us and He says, you're innocent of the charges leveled against you. The Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. And God is the judge, but James says God is also the advocate. So we have an advocate. That's a defense attorney. We have an advocate through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ steps into the courtroom and says, I'll take the charges. Put them on me. This is what I did at Calvary. I absorbed the penalty of sin upon the cross for this person so that they could be declared righteous. And God looks at the sinner and He declares you righteous. It's a wonderful moment in life. But it only happens once. The rest of your life, you're... You know, you're striving to be like God. We talk about people backsliding. Uh, every single one of us have backslid. We're all backsliders. Uh, we take two steps forward and then we take a step back. That's backsliding. And we take two steps forward again. You know, it, it's gradual. It's incremental. We all slide back and then we, we have to move forward. Uh, that's just the reality of the nature of what it means to walk with God. And then, it's a one-time event, baptism. We celebrate. We, we celebrate with with Brad back in January, baptizing him in water, uh, being buried with Christ in baptism, Romans 6, so he could rise in newness of life, identifying in Christ. I can't wait to talk about baptism because it's what happens at baptism. You are in Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit is that it is Christ inside of us, but the power of baptism in water is that it's us being identified as in Christ. So Christ is in us through baptism of water, we are in Christ with baptism in water, and Christ is in us through the baptism of the Spirit. But that baptism, that initial baptism, only happens once. You know, and I've, I, I say it a lot, but you know, we would all live really wet if we had to be baptized every time we made a mistake. 
And that's, that's not the idea is that I'm going in there for somehow that's going to magically wash away my sins. That's not how that works. You're baptized once. Repentance, however, is very different. Repentance is for life. You don't come to faith and repent once. Repentance is something that happens, should happen at some level on a daily basis. You take showers daily or close to daily, whatever your rhythm is. Why? Because you get out of the shower, you're like, I'm clean, right? Well, you're going to get dirty again. Like, it's, it's just really temporary. Uh, it, it's just a, you know, it's this constant back and forth. And repentance is the same way. And, you know, you, you go through the day, you don't try to get dirty. It just happens. It's the natural course of life that I go through life and I just, you know, I was like, man, I, I need a shower. Did you work hard today? No, I just, I, I feel like I need another shower. Why? It just, it just happens. And it happens spiritually that way that you don't even have to touch dirt to get dirty. It just, it comes from spiritually, it comes from the inside. It's like, I need a, I need a cleansing. Well, you don't need to be baptized again. You just need to go before the Lord and repent again. Say, pray the prayers. This is why praying the Psalms is so powerful and so important, is to pray Scripture. Pray what the psalmist said. So David, King David in the Psalms, makes this prayer and says, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Like, let the outside, what everybody sees, I want that to be acceptable in your sight. But that's not enough, God. You see the inward man. You delight in the inward man. And I need that to be pure. You don't sin every day. This isn't a license to, to live a sinful lifestyle. But it's also a reality that none of us are perfect. And there is a place for you inside of Christ where you can live above sin. But the stink of this world and the stink of this culture and the sights and the sounds and the lusts and the drives and the enticements, it all just kind of stick on you like barnacles that just need to be scraped off. And so we pray, God, let like King David, let my words, let my outward acts, and let my heart, let my mind, let all of that be acceptable in your sight. Search me, O God. That's what David prayed. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any wicked way inside of me, cleanse those things because I want to be pure and clean and holy. You never get too big for conviction. That Spirit of God that kind of works its way inside your heart and your mind and kind of just knocks on the door and uh, says, Son, what, what, do I, what do you have inside that closet that, that you're not letting me uh, get into and, and help you with. And, uh, our inclination, we all have it, is to quickly just kind of close the door and say, there's nothing to see here, Lord. Just move on. But we need to do like the writer of the New Testament says, because the New Testament writer says, I believe it's in Hebrews, uh, says we are open and honest with Him that we have to deal with. Like we don't have a choice. He sees inside. Like God's knocking on the door saying, what do we have in here? And he already knows the answer. He just needs me to open up the door and say, come on in, Lord, and, uh, and help me with this. Altars of repentance are never too big for anybody. So I really am closing with this verse. Luke 18. Two men, now this is Jesus telling a story. Jesus tells a story and says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, that's the really super religious people. They're the religious of the religious. He's a Pharisee, and the other one's a tax collector. Now, even today I imagine that tax collectors aren't 
the most popular people if they're knocking on your door. But in that day, tax collectors meant a whole different thing. It didn't just mean that you worked for the IRS. It had a whole other connotation because a lot of tax collectors were crooked. They would line their own pockets. And so when Jesus says this, he's painting an image. He's like trying to pick the lowest profession that he could think of. So two guys go to pray. One's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. The Pharisee is standing by himself and he prays thus. <clears throat> and I kind of hear the tone of Jesus as he, as he does this. God, in this really super religious voice, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Jesus kind of replays that guy's role in the temple. And then Jesus said, but the tax collector was standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can never be too proud or too big or too spiritual to repent. You know, just God baptize us with a spirit of humility that is willing to fall at his feet and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So as we close this morning, I want to lead us in a prayer. And I will ask you that you pray with me in your own way and lead us in a prayer of repentance in our own lives, wherever you're at. I don't know where you're at on your, on your faith journey. Uh, at this point, this morning, it doesn't matter. It's between you and God. But wherever you're at, we can all find a place of repentance and ask God to touch us. Let's pray together in dismissal. Father, thank you this morning. Once again, I know I, I preached your word, but I thank you for that word. It wasn't mine. I uh, thank you for your words that are in this book and for the opportunity that I had to to expound upon them and to preach them. And now, Lord, we all stand here today in need of grace and mercy. You told us in your word that we could come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. And that's the time we don't want to come to the grace. We don't want to come when we're in need, Lord. We're embarrassed, we're ashamed, we're humiliated, we're condemned. But you've told us there is no condemnation. You've told us, Lord, that we can find grace and mercy in your throne room, in your house. So now, Lord, this morning, I pray a prayer collectively. And as we pray individually, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight. We pray, Lord, for forgiveness of every sin that we have ever committed. Everyone here today, Lord, myself included, we have committed sin in our lives. And we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your grace and your mercy to cover that. But Lord, we know that that's not the end. Lord, we know that we are justified through our faith in you. That When we align our allegiance to you, our faith in you as Lord of our lives, Lord, that, that you do something miraculous in our lives, in our hearts and our minds. So Lord, this morning, I don't know everyone here that who is... Uh, committed believer and who is not but Lord I pray that you would draw all of us to that place of commitment of dedication to your word that we would intentionally make a decision to become a disciple disciples and worshipers of Jesus Christ we pray today Lord that you would lead us on our paths this week give us direction grant us wisdom this week in our decisions 
I pray this week, Lord, that you would help us to be sensitive to your word and to your spirit, that we would have a sober mind and a sincere heart, Lord, before you, that we would serve others, that we would walk humbly and faithfully, Lord, before you, and help us to be lights and witnesses in this culture, in this dark world. And Lord, I pray you'd bring us back next week. We want to gather to worship you and to make much of your name and to be faithful to your name. And we ask this in the name, above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you this morning. Thank you, everybody, for coming.